Xavier, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading from tonight is from the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was filled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm taking a page from Christopher Nolan, the director of a lot of really beloved movies, uh, The Dark Knight Trilogy, Inception, Tenet, his most recent offering for us. And a lot of times Christopher Nolan, what he'll do at the beginning of one of his movies is he will give you a slice, just a scene, a glimpse of something that is going to be happening later on in the movie, usually towards the last half. It could be up until the very end, and he'll bring it up to the beginning. And at first you're like, where are we? What's going on? I have no idea what's happening. And then as the more you go through the story, the more that picture that was given to you initially starts to come into focus with greater clarity. That's what we just did with Daniel chapter 4, right? We go through, and you probably were not anticipating that we would be going through and reading that bizarre passage for us as we get ready to dive into God's Word on the last Oxano of the semester, right? But I'm hoping that as we go through Daniel chapters 1 through 4, yes, 1 through 4, we're going to cover a lot of ground tonight. I'm hoping that that picture at the end will come into crystal clarity for you come into focus, and then we will be able to see how and why this can intersect our lives and what we can do about it. If you're joining us for the first time tonight, we are concluding the semester and we're concluding a series called Cow Tipping, Tearing Down Idols in Our Lives. The idols are not just something that's out there, but it's something that's in here. That idols aren't just bad things, but idols can actually be good things, good things that we make God's. And as we've gone through, we've gone in successive weeks, we've looked at how we can make money a god. That money can itself become an idol. Or last week we looked at relationships and sex and how both of those can become an idol in our lives. And then tonight what we're going to be doing is we're going to take a little bit of a different approach. And what we're going to be doing is it's kind of a case study in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel chapters 1 through 4, as we look at this Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. And as we go through, we're going to see how he, in an exaggerated form, really epitomizes what it looks like to serve the idols of power and control. 
And as we go through and as we look at different portions in Daniel chapter 1 through 4, I need you to know, I believe that every single word of this is true. That I believe that this is God's inspired word for us. But I believe that the writer, as he's going through and as he's writing these things down, he is doing so in a fashion that draws us in and that paints a picture and that shows this is what it looks like to try to work claw, tooth and nail, eventually even in what we just read in Daniel chapter 4, to accumulate power and to exert control for yourself. And you see, it's not just something that happens with a Babylonian king from the 6th century B.C. But it's something that even we fall prey to in serving here today. And so as we dive in, we're going to be looking at different chapters. Chapters 1 through 4. I'm going to be going fast. I'm going to be having some scripture on the screens. You can follow along in each successive chapter or you can follow along up there. But we see in Daniel chapter 1 the assimilation. Well, what do I mean by assimilation? Well, quick crash course on Old Testament history. God's people, the nation of Israel throughout the course of time, became divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, right? The northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom had been conquered by the Assyrians two centuries before this happens. And so they had been already deported. They had been exiled into a foreign land. And now we're coming in here into the land of Judah. And they were conquered by the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C. And as they're coming through right here, what Nebuchadnezzar does is the thing that he does to start the exile is he starts to identify the people that he thinks shows the most promise. He starts to identify who he deems to be the smartest, the most noble, that will represent him the best. He's building his squad. He's going over here and he's starting to handpick these different folks and he is bringing them back. And look at what happens right here. As he's taken over Jerusalem and Judah, he brings the best and the brightest. And we can imagine that he is the king probably exerts a lot of control and demonstrates a lot of power. But look at the lengths that he goes to. Verse 4. He selected youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature of the Chaldeans. That's the people of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So really what we have is King Nebuchadnezzar going through a brainwashing, indoctrination type of process. He is discipling them in the language and culture and history of Babylon. That they're going through, there is a re-education that is having to go through here. They're going to Babylon High School, right? And they're coming up here and they're wanting to make sure that they get the right GPA that will launch them further up into the king's courts. But if that's not enough, he's determining their meal regiment. There's no selections in the cafeteria. Now, granted, it's probably pretty sweet fare. It's coming straight from the king's table. It's what he himself is eating and what he himself is drinking. But look at what, he is Nebuchadnezzar. He is an exaggerated figure of ourselves and our propensity to accumulate power and to demonstrate control over other people. And he highlights how we can seek to control how others act and how others think. That a lot of times, it's not just something for kings and tyrants and despots. Like, that it is something that we ourselves can seek to control how others act and think. Because you see, at the end of the day, when we seek to do this, what we want to do is we want to make other people like ourselves. That we want to create other people in our own image. You know, earlier this week as I was preparing for this sermon, 
I just, out of the blue, I was reading, and my wife and I, we have, you know, it's, when you're married for so long, you just kind of develop this shorthand and this sense of humor and everything like that. And so I just text her out of the blue the most random stuff sometimes just to kind of see what reaction I get. But as I was going through and I was reading this, this is all that I send my wife via Apple iMessage. King Nebuchadnezzar is Regina George from Mean Girls. King Nebuchadnezzar is essentially Regina George from Mean Girls. If you've seen that movie or if you've seen the play, what's happening right here? Katie Heron, who's played by Lindsay Lohan in the movie, she goes to a new school. She finds her way into this group where they sit in a certain place, where they do certain things, they eat certain foods, and they wear certain colors on certain days, right? On Wednesdays we wear pink, you know, kind of thing. That they're going through and she is being brought into this. And Regina, in this little group, she seeks to control others' behaviors. How they act, how they think, what they do, who they do and do not date. Now, we might not be as manipulative or we might not think we're as manipulative as King Nebuchadnezzar or as Regina George. But you see, there are ways. I mean, There are things that we do to control how other people perceive us. That sometimes we can be constantly thinking of, well, how am I going to come across in their eyes? Or if I can assert, if I can be really confident, if I can put this and lift this up and make other people buy into this, if I can be an influencer in this regard, if I can gain a following, if I can get a platform, if I can have a voice, if I can speak into that, if I can accumulate a certain amount of clout, then I will be able to get people to like me. And you see, the thing about it is we idolize power and control. And in using each of these to get more of the other. That it's the same kind of downward spiral. That we idolize power and control. Using each other to get more. That we take the power that we have to exert more control over other people. And in that control we are seeking to get more power. And we take that power and we get more control. And we get that control and we get more power. Until it's a downward spiral. Until we seek to have total domination. Maybe not of the world. But of the people around us. That a lot of times this type of assimilation, it can happen. It's not just back there, but it happens even here. But you see, Daniel, who's one of the main characters going through the book of Daniel. You know, it's not going to be until later on, Daniel chapter 6, I believe, that you get to the famous stories like Daniel and the lion's den. But Daniel, as he's a young guy, he comes over here with his companions. And if you're reading Daniel 1 through 4, you see that they're uh, Jewish names. Hazariah, Mishael. And what was the other one? Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. But they are what? They are renamed as they're coming over into Babylon. They are now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That there is something that happens when the king is trying to change their fundamental identity in speaking all the way down to their very names, which in that Hebrew culture would have gone to the very core of who they were. And it's very easy, maybe y'all are like me, it's sometimes it can be very hard when you, go back to, when you go to a different place for the first time or if you go back to a place that you hadn't been in a while. That if you go to a place where you haven't been in a while, sometimes you can fall back into old patterns very easily or into who you used to be, right? Like a lot of y'all are going to be experiencing that when y'all go home for Christmas or the holidays or be around family in the coming weeks. I found that like when I was going over to college that a lot of times my parents, they weren't around when I was going through and I was becoming this new person, that I was really coming into myself. I was making decisions on my own. But there were ways that I would kind of fall back into patterns. I'd relapse a little bit more into who I had always been. 
Or maybe if you're going to a new place and you feel untethered, unmoored, you're not connected to other people who don't know you. And so you're, you start to question very fundamental things about yourself and you start to act in a different way because you are out of a familiar context. It would have been very easy for Daniel and his three friends, his three amigos, to be able to go through and to be like, hey, we're in a new place. We're in a new situation. It's under a new regime. We just got to be able to figure out how to put our head down, go through, be in this king's court, and hey, let's ladder climb. Like We were already picked, hand-selected, so let's make the most of this. This is a pretty sweet gig. Let's hop on this gravy train. Let's keep going. But Daniel, they resolved that they would not defile themselves. And they said, we don't want to defile ourselves with the unclean food from the king's table and the drinks that he's sending to us. And so rather what we would like to do is we would like to eat only vegetables and drink only water. And the guy who's in charge of like all of these interns, he comes over here and he's like, um, if you do that, you're going to be weak and then that's going to reflect poorly on me and King Nebi is going to have my head. All right. And that's not going to fly. And so he's going over here and they say, Daniel is the spokesman for them. He's kind of like, well, here, what, what if we do a little bit of an experiment? Just let us do this for 10 days. 10 days is all I'm asking. Let us eat the vegetables, let us drink the water, and we'll see at the end how we kind of stack up. And as they're going through it, they end up getting to the end of the experiment, and they are at the top of their class physically and mentally. And they're going through, and rather than seeking advice, they were not trying, they yielded control to the Lord, and they did not chase after power or influence. They passed on the opportunity to rise through the ranks, to not make a fuss, to go with the flow, to be politically expedient, so that they could follow the one true God and the word that he entrusted to his people, even though they were in a different place. So this is the first episode. The king is having to have control and exert power from afar. But we get over here, and we actually see King Nebuchadnezzar for the first time in chapter 2. And we see in chapter 2 the first dream of the book of Daniel. The first dream. So the first dream, they're all kept around, Daniel and his friends, and they're actually promoted. They're, they're given advanced standing in the king's court. So they're kept around and promoted. But King Nebuchadnezzar, he starts having dreams that troubled himself. And so now he's going to trouble his court magicians and advisors to get the dream and the interpretation out of them. And y'all, this is next level stuff that's happening in the OT right here. Because you remember what happened in the book of Exodus, right? That over there, Pharaoh was having dreams. And over here, what happens? Joseph interprets the dreams. But Pharaoh told him the dreams. And he just offered the interpretation. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's kicking it up a notch, right? He's going to say, nuh-uh. I don't want y'all to hoodwink me. I don't want you just to come over here and me to give you something that you can spin. Like, you're going to tell me the dream itself. And then you're going to give me the interpretation. We're going we're gonna to take it up to the next level. And what he's doing right here, we see in verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, to the Babylonians, those who were in his court, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and the interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. That you see that this guy is unhinged. That he is going, like he has been at the top of power, he has accumulated all of this control, and now, right here, he's an exaggerated figure of ourselves and our propensity to control. And he highlights how we can seek to control the terms and the timing. That a lot of times we, we don't have a lot of people at our command or our disposal. We don't have dreams that we need people, we're trying to protect ourselves from being hoodwinked. But we really do like to control the terms of how other people relate to us or how God relates to us. And we like to control the timing 
of when those kind of things are going to be happening. Sometimes like, we see this, like even when a toddler says, like, no, I want it now. Like, I want it right now. I know you said that I can't have that, but I'm refuting that. I want that. And when do I want it? I want it right now. It's kind of like with Dwight Schrute from The Office, where he's like, for once, I would just like to be the puppeteer and nothing to go wrong. Is that too much to ask? Right? You know, it's like he wanting to be able to have things go our way, to be able to have our hands over here and orchestrating all these different things that are going on. We want to be able to control what is going to happen and when it is going to happen. And in doing this, we are putting ourselves in the place of God. That really, we are seeking to become the sovereign. That we want to be the ones with the power. That we want to be the ones with control. We want to be able to determine the terms of how we will engage. And we want to be able to be sure that we can execute the timing on a timetable that pleases us. You see, but Daniel, he doesn't do this. In the face of someone who's coming in and throwing around his weight. And Nebuchadnezzar, he gets to the point where like, all y'all frauds, we're killing all y'all. Like, it's going through, and like, he's sending his guys out there, and he's going through, the word is being taken out, that he is executing all these folks. But this is what Daniel does, verse 16. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Do you just kind of see the contrast right here? He's going in request. he's trying to sign up for an appointment. Like, he's just trying to figure out what, when his schedule is. Like, I will adjust to you. Then Daniel went to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the men of Babylon. But then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So he goes to his friends, and he, he calls for a prayer meeting. And he says, listen... This ain't going to come from us. We've got to go and we have got to be, we've got to seek the Lord and we've got to seek him in his mercy to be able to go and get through this and see if the Lord will not work on our behalf. And so he goes through in the night, the vision comes to Daniel and then Daniel, when he receives it, look what he says in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To whom belong wisdom and might. He, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in darkness and the light that dwells with him. To you, O God, O God of my fathers, I give you thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made me known to what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. You see... Daniel, he's giving God all the credit. And he's doing it in private. He's doing it when he's just with his guys. He's doing it in the face before the Lord in prayer. But he's not just going to keep it there, but he's going to take that into the public sphere as well. Look what happens next in verse 26 of chapter 2. The king declared to Daniel, whose name he re actually renamed Daniel, Belteshazzar. So, are you able to make known to me the dream? That I've seen in its interpretation. Daniel answered the king. No wise men. Enchanters. Magicians. And astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But. There is a God in heaven. Who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar. What will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head. As you lay in bed. Are these. 
He's going through. If ever there was a time for Daniel to have been able to assert himself, to grab just a little bit of power, to bring over here and scooch in just a little bit of influence, to be able to demonstrate just a little bit of control over his trajectory and future, it would have been right here. The king brings him in. He's talking to him. So you're going to be the one to tell me what my dreams are and what they mean. But what does Daniel do? No, it's not me. Nobody can do this. But you will know that there is a God and he is the one who is going to be able to tell these things to you. Because he realizes, I have only received these things. It is nothing intrinsic within me. Daniel, he wasn't seeking to get glory for his own name, but for the name of the one true God in heaven. He could have chased after power or influence in this moment, but he sought to be faithful rather than famous. He sought to be present there and to be able to serve rather than to be served. And you see, we can be starved for attention. We can be starved for power and control. We can claw tooth and nail to get it. And this is bad. And a lot of times if we go pursuing down that path and to accumulate it for ourselves, it can be bad. But a lot of times, it might just be heaped on you. You might not be going to seek it and it just comes to you. That you have something that goes viral, right? That happens a lot this day and age, I guess, right? Or that you have somebody that's going over here talking to you, that you are now in a position of prominence, people start listening to you. Well, that's not bad in and of itself, but what happens when you receive that? What, what is your next step? Are you going to keep it for yourself? You see, this is something that as I walk alongside uh, college students and young adults, especially that follow the Lord closely, sometimes we have a really hard time taking compliments, right? We have a hard time receiving positive encouragement or positive feedback. I think part of it is a place because we don't want to go down this road, that we're just so hesitant that we don't want to be anywhere near the idols of power or control. But I think sometimes maybe we might be curating an image of false humility, that we want to be seen as the type of person that doesn't want to be able to hear those kind of things. And we're all the time being like, oh, stop. Oh, stop. I don't, I don't want to hear that. Oh, yes, please. Keep going. Please keep telling me more. And you see, one of those things that has really helped me, whether it's after an Oxano, whether it's after a meeting one-on-one with a student or a young adult, as we're going through, and you know, if people come up and if they provide encouragement for me, then there used to be a time where it's like, oh, yeah, no, 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 please stop, please stop, all this kind of stuff. But then the Lord convicted me that, well, you didn't receive this. I'm using you in this regard. But just gladly receive and then give it back to me. And so now it's to the place where if somebody gives me positive encouragement or positive feedback, then I go through and I take it. I look at them and I say, maybe you've said to some of you, thank you so much for the encouragement. I'm so glad that the Lord used that in your life in some small way. I hope he continues to do that. That you take those things and whether I'm walking home because we live just a block that way or whether I'm walking back after a long day, I'll go back and I'll look over those things as kind of verbal crowns that have been accumulated throughout the course of the day. And I'll try to remember them all. I'll thank the Lord. for. I'll gather them up. And then mentally and in my spirit, I will place them at the feet of Jesus as an offering for him. And I'll say, all glory to you, King Jesus. These are for you. They're not for me. I'm not going to hold on to one just for myself. I'm not going to keep it back over here. I'm not going to pet it. 
I'm not going to nurse it. I'm not going to just keep it as my own because that's when things start to go. But when we start to get that taste, when we start to want to accumulate more power, more control, that's when we start doing things. We will start creating content. We will start writing things. We'll start saying things. We'll start posting things just because we want the response and it's what gets the people going and interacting rather than doing what we know what God has called us to do and be faithful. And so going through right here, that we receive this, having the same disposition as Daniel, being like, listen, it's not me. It's the Lord. I'm glad he's using it, and I pray that he continues to do it. And he tells him the dream. And the dream, he tells it and he gives the interpretation. And basically, it's a dream of this giant statue. And it is a lot of different layers. It's got a head of gold. It's got a chest of a different metal, a torso of a different one, legs of a different one, and then feet of a different one. And they're progressively getting less and less prestigious and less and less strong. And as they're going, though, Daniel tells him this interpretation, that King Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar loved that. He absolutely loved being first, loved being the head, loved being on top, and he loved being made of gold, right? And so he's over here, and like I can get on board with that, but then Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdoms that are coming after, and the chest, the torso, the legs, and the feet, that these are other kingdoms that would arise after him, and then finally there would be a rock as if cut from a mountain that would come and that would knock every remaining piece of the statue down, and it would be a kingdom that never ends and that nobody could unseat and nebuchadnezzar he's going to file that away he keeps it in mind he disregards it he's got a work around or so he thinks we'll see that in chapter three but nebuchadnezzar is awestruck and he actually confesses the greatness of daniel's god you can go through you can look in 247 and he says yeah this is your god props to him that's great but do you still notice the distance like game recognized game almost kind of thing over here. Like, yeah, this guy, he deserves praise. But I still get my due. I still get me and mine. So next, Nebuchadnezzar, he promotes Daniel. He promotes his three friends even further up the ladder. But then Nebuchadnezzar, he starts to promote himself. And that's when we get over into chapter 3 into a very well-known Bible story and I pray that your familiarity with this passage, your potential familiarity with this passage, would not stand in the way of true understanding. We look over here that Nebuchadnezzar actually makes the statue from his dream. He makes this giant statue that is 90 feet tall. Like this joker is huge. That you're going through and this statue, he invites surrounding nations to be able to come in and to the rulers and their officials to come and to worship the image. Come and worship the image that he made of himself. It's a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And basically what he's saying and doing this, inviting, may the peoples praise me. Let the nations be glad so that all may know and all may sing the praise, the praise of Nebuchadnezzar. That he is calling them to worship to himself. But you see, the thing about this statue is it's different than the dream. It's not an exact replica. Because what Nebuchadnezzar has done is it's not just the head that's gold. But the chest, the torso, the legs, and the feet. The whole thing is covered in gold. And in him doing this, what he is in essence doing is saying, I am going to exert some control over my fate. I am the captain of my destiny. 
And the gold will not just be with me at the head, but the gold will follow all the way through. There is not going to be anyone that comes after me that is going to be greater than me. My shadow will loom large over the rest of this kingdom. And what he shows in inflated form for us is our tendency to control our reputation and our legacy. That we can seek to control reputation. And I've seen this, y'all. I can say this because I've seen it in myself. In trying to curate a particular image. And yes, social media is the easy target here. And that does happen a lot. But even doing it in conversations. In the types of stories that I choose to tell. And the types of restaurants that I tell people that I go to. And the types of experiences or places that I've been to and traveled. That we try to give the appearance, we try to give the illusion, we try to give this image of ourselves to other people that we think would be desirable and that we think that they would worship. I've seen it with college students, young adults through the years, and also like with a legacy, so many have dreams of making an impact. And I do think that some of them are genuine and they want to see this world be made a better place. But I think a lot of times that it can just be, I want to accumulate a name for myself. I want my name and my work to outlive me here i want people to continue to say oh yeah that's the person going through achieving the great name for themselves and you see we are really just setting up 90 foot statues of ourselves all over the place and calling other people to come and to worship us but daniel daniel and his three friends They are charged with not worshiping the king. And so the king commands them to be brought in and moves from interrogation to expectation very, very quickly. Look what happens in verse 13 of chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, because he heard that they weren't worshiping, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, he doesn't give him time to answer. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning and fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? King Nebuchadnezzar is acting like someone who has been on the top by himself for a very, very long time. One who is able to exert great power and control. And we see yet again that this trio, they didn't try to take power and control over their diets. They didn't try to take power and control over these things with dreams and just saving their heads. But they are right here entrusting themselves to God who could deliver, who is the only one who could deliver them out of the king's hands. And do you notice what they say? They trusted their God, and they trusted him regardless of the outcome. We pick it up in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and said to the king, and just think about the boldness and the faith that you would have to have to be able to say words like this. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, 
Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That they have this resolve that we will not compromise worship of the one and true living God for you thinking that you yourself are one. Even if it is expedient for us, even if it means that we get to keep our flesh, we will not worship. Our God can save us. We believe that he will. But even if he doesn't, we're still not doing it. And y'all, Nebuchadnezzar is furious. That right here, he did not like this. And in his fury, he has them hurled into this furnace that he had, that had just been heated to what Scripture would say seven times its normal temperature. You know, it was even so hot, you can read in verse 22, we're not going to do it now. It was so hot that it killed some of the men that were actually escorting them to their excruciating execution. That they could not handle the heat. And then, as Nebuchadnezzar sees them thrown into the fiery furnace, he's probably expecting to hear the thud. He's probably expecting to hear the screams, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, get us out, get us, I will do this, whatever it takes. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the one true king. You are the one God. But he doesn't hear any of that. He doesn't hear the screams from excruciating pain. He doesn't hear the sizzling of flesh on the bone. He doesn't smell the burning of hair. So he starts to go over and take a look. And then he calls his counselors over. And we see verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar, he was astonished. He rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three bound men into the fire? They answered and said, true, O king, we did. Verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. You see, God in this moment does not leave his people alone. And God right here is demonstrating in his power that he can even use the schemes of the enemy to bring freedom to his people. He can protect them through the fiery trial. Because did you notice what's happening? The fire that burned, it burned up those things which bound them. But it did not burn them up. That they were thrown bound into the fire. But Nebuchadnezzar says that I see four men unbound. And the fourth with them, with them is, has the appearance like a son of the gods. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is getting the answer to the question he had asked up in verse 15. Who can save you out of my hands? Well, it is the one and true living God that is able to save and preserve them through the fiery trial. And in response to this, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, it's like you can't deny the evidence when it's in front of you. And he confesses, yeah, this God, he's blessed. He's still the God of these three, though. He's not my God. But no one can speak anything against this God. Let it be known. Nobody, don't speak anything against him. If he can do this, he can do a whole lot more. I don't want to trifle with that. But I need you all to still speak up for me. We're still going to keep going with this Nebuchadnezzar worship thing. And then we finally get over into chapter 4. And we see in chapter 4 the cut down and being raised up. And we see that it's not long before Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And this time it's not of a great statue but of a great tree. 
and the tree is being chopped down and carted off. And it's indicative. Daniel's brought in. He, interp- he interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And then it gets over, and we see that Nebuchadnezzar, he's about to get cut down to size. That it's about to be a little bit more immediate. We see in verse 29 of chapter 4, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the palace. He was surveying his kingdom. He was looking over Babylon in verse 30. And the king answered and said, I was kind of talking to himself a little bit. This is what he says. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power and is a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. That here we see the most clear and damning sentence that has come out of his mouth thus far. That he is looking up over all that he has achieved. He is looking over all he thinks that he is the one responsible for making this. And he is giving glory to himself. We were created for glory. We were created to reflect and to give glory. But right here, Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing the depth of the fall and refracting that glory back onto himself. And he's not going to be able to take it. And this is what happens. You see, the idols of power and control can deceive us into thinking that we are gods. Now, we might not be the kings and queens over vast nations. But we might seek to be the kings and queens of our own souls or those of our families or those of our churches or those of our workplaces, of our classrooms, of the places where we would eventually be. Accumulating power, accumulating control, influence. And we can even at different times say that it's for a good purpose or I'm going to get just enough power and I'll give it away if it becomes too much. But we are lulled and deceived into thinking that we can be worshipped and that we are the captains Of our own destiny. And we see in verse 31. That the Lord in his judgment. And I would argue in his kindness. Intersects Nebuchadnezzar's life. For the first time directly. Look at what he says in verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth. There fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar. To you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That this is not because you are somehow better that this is not because you were somehow smarter or harder working, that I am the one that is sovereign over all of this, not you. And then verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. That Nebuchadnezzar right here, is being humbled. He is being cut down. He is being shown in a very exaggerated way that this is not your own doing. You need to know that you are not God and that I am. That in this is judgment, but I would also argue that in this is kindness. Because in this, Nebuchadnezzar is woken up 
from his godlike stupor. And that he is able to see, his eyes are opened to the true king and to the kingdom that he rules over. Because we see at the very beginning of verse 4, this is what he says in verse 1. Look at this uh, in chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar is addressing everyone. He is coming in and he is speaking directly to the readers right here. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. No longer just for Daniel. No longer just for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not just for these other people, but the works that he has shown to me. It's not out there, but now it's in here. How great are his signs. Not how great are my signs. How mighty are his wonders. Not my wonders. But he is saying his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was finally able to do what we've been talking about in these previous three weeks together. If we are to tear down idols in our lives, how are we to do that? How do we tear down idols? Well, it's the same process regardless of what it is. That we first have to identify the idol. We have to ID the idol. We have to call it for what it is. Because sometimes one of the idol's greatest tricks is by going by unnamed or not being seen as a threat. And after we identify the idol, we have to tear it down. Either its presence in our lives or its prominence in our lives. That yes, some of us can idolize school, some of us can idolize money. And I've said it before, that doesn't mean that you need to drop out of school tomorrow. And that doesn't mean that you need to go back to the trade and barter system. But you might need to remove its prominence in your life. And there are some idols that you need to remove the presence of outright. That you need to tear those things down in your life. But it's not enough just to tear down idols. Because if you just tear it down, then you're just going to build it right back up. It's just going to come back and it's going to bring friends with it. But rather, when you tear it down, you have to seek to replace it with something else. It's not enough just for Israel to tear down the altars to Baal and the Asherah poles. They have to tear those things down and they have to give worship to the one true living God. You have to ID the idol. You have to tear it down in their presence or prominence. And then you have to replace it. And as we go through and as we are seeking, he is replacing it. He sees, he begins to worship God. That God, he is truly able to humble the proud and exalt the humble. He is able to see that God's kingdom is the only everlasting kingdom, not his. No matter how much gold he plasters on a big sculpture of himself. That God is the only one who has all power and control. And we can see, and I hope you've been able to pick on some of the undertones in Daniel 1-4. through That it's foreshadowing and it's looking towards the God that we know now more fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That we see Jesus in his life, in his coming, in his living, in his dying, in his rising. That he did not idolize power and use control to get it. He did not idolize control and use power to get it. But rather, in Matthew chapter 3, what does he do when he is being tempted in the wilderness by the devil? He is taken up to a high mountain. He is seeing all the kingdoms of the earth. And the devil tells him this, just bow down and worship me and all of these things will become yours. But Jesus refuses to short-circuit the process, and he knows that he was coming not just for a land, but for a people. And if he was going to redeem a people, then it was going to require blood. It was going to be messy. He was going to have to go through the hard work of redemption, of bringing people back together. And he says what? Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall love the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
Or what does he say in Colossians chapter 1? He is the God who has delivered us out of the hand. Nebuchadnezzar said, who is it that's going to deliver you out of my hand? Oh, it's just whispers, it's just foreshadowings of Jesus who is going to be the one that takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and transfers us into his glorious kingdom that is full of life and light and love. That as he's going through, we see in Matthew chapter 1 that the one in the fire, people debate about whether or not it's the pre-incarnate son or whether it's an angel messenger. Regardless, we see that God is with his people. And in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us through whatever fiery trial. He is the one who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. For better or for worse. That he is with his people. And in the dream that we saw with the rock that was cut from the mountain and that came and tore down the statue and that grew in prominence and that everyone else would never unseat. That in Hebrews 12, that he is the rock who would usher in a kingdom that no one else would overtake and the kingdom that would have no end. And in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus is the one who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of this, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone. Well, we confess it with tongues of praise or tongues of dread. We will say that Jesus is Lord when we see him return in glory. I'm pleading with you, would it be out of praise? Because you see, for us, don't be content in serving yourself. Because in idolizing power and control, what we're really doing, and we've seen this with all the idols, is we are in essence idolizing self. Are you going to go through this life worshiping the one true living God who created you and has redeemed you? Or are you going to worship yourself and what you can gather for yourself and what you can do for yourself and how you can promote yourself? Because you see, you could go through and sing, and I would encourage you not to sing this, but you could go through and you could sing, Oh, self be magnified. Let my praise arise. We do that a lot in very subtle ways. But rather, I would plead with you, sing with full assurance, Oh, Christ be magnified. Would he be enlarged? Would his influence grow? Would he be spread around in and through my life? And would his praise arise? Because you see, you can go searching through the world trying to find any and everything for your restless heart. It was St. Augustine who said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. I would just save you the trouble from looking all these other dead-end places. I would just call you to follow the one who knows you the most, and that can be a scary thought. He knows every part of you, and yet he still loves you, and he still wants a relationship with you. And being able to go through, you're not going to be able to, like, just accumulating man's empty praise, treasures that fade, it will never be enough. You can only find satisfaction and peace in the one true God. Now, it won't be easy. If you refuse to bow the knee to idols, 
there are fiery trials that are going to be coming. And you have to have that resolve that I will not bow to idols, but you can rejoice because God is there with you too. It's not going to be easy. He never said it would be. But it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Because truly, there is nothing better than Him. I'm telling you this. There's nothing better than Jesus. He is the only one that has the power to turn, the power to redeem. He's the only one who can turn mourning to dancing. He's the only one who can turn beauty, in, beauty from ashes. He's the only one who can turn shame into glory, graves into gardens, bones into armies, seas into highways, and us. He can turn us from worshipers of self into worshipers of the one true living God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be able to see you for who you truly are. The one who is high and lifted up, possessing all power and control, and who is filled and brimming with love. God, would we stop pursuing dead-end ways of living and seeking worship and praise from men and women around us? And instead, would we be able to receive those things and lay them at your feet? God, for the one who's here tonight and wants to take that step to turn away from serving themselves and to live their life for more, to live their life for you, God, would you help them to take that next step? Would you give the boldness for them to take that step towards you? Would you open their eyes like King Nebuchadnezzar? And would they be able to see and to give you all the credit and all the glory to see the ways that you have been moving in every moment up until now? And Father, for the ones of us who follow you and who have forgotten and have been lulled into thinking in subtle ways that we are the captains of our own destiny or we seek to control other people, timetables and terms, God, would we yield to you? Would we lay ourselves down? Would we die to self? And will we find our life in Christ? We need your help for this, Lord. And we ask that you would do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano Podcast. If you want more information on the songs that we sing at Oxano, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.